Open your Bibles to the uh, Gospel Mark. Uh, if you guys are new here, um, we've been going through the Gospel Mark over the past several months. Uh, we're about 37 weeks into this great book. Uh, we still got quite a bit to go. Um, so you would imagine by the time we're all done, this is going to take quite a while to be able to get through here. But uh, hopefully it's been a good journey for you guys up until this point. Uh, we're going to be taking a look at a story uh, about Jesus, um, idols, and idolatry or riches and idolatry is really the story that we're going to be taking a look at. It's the story of Jesus interacting uh, with what the Bible describes as a rich young ruler, or at least that's what your heading says in your Bible. So um, it's sort of that picture of Jesus interacting with this guy. It becomes sort of the uh, stepping off point into another case study as to what it looks like when God becomes king. That's the bigger theme that Mark's wanting for us to ask and he's wanting for us to ask those questions. What does it look like if God were to really become king? What does God's kingdom look like? How can I identify God's kingdom? How can I live in God's kingdom? How do I get brought into God's kingdom? That's the bigger question that Jesus is going to be answering. That's the question that Mark wants to press upon us. So with that, I'm going to pray first, and then we'll read this story. Uh, it begins around verse 17, goes down about verse 31, and then we'll begin to jump in and take a look at this great story. Let's pray. God, we ask for your help. We need wisdom. And God, we pray that this would be more than just simply a Bible study, something in which we uh, intellectually interact with an old document. God, I pray that it would not be merely that. I pray that this would be you as a living God fellowshipping with us, giving revelation to our hearts as to what you desire for us and how much you love us and how you've demonstrated that love for us. So God, I ask you that you would just let your word speak to our hearts and bring about transformation and revelation. We pray and ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to pick it up around verse 17, read down about verse 31. You guys can follow along if you'd like. If you don't have Bibles, we have them in the back. Please feel free to grab one. If you don't own one, that is our gift to you because we, we like you. We want you to have Bibles. Verse 17. It says, and as he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up and knelt down before him, and he asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus then said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all of these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful because he had great possessions. And then Jesus looked around and he said to his disciples, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God, for the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus then said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier to come, uh, for a, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter into the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished, and they said to him, then who can be saved? But Jesus looked at them, and he said, with men, it's impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything to follow you. And then Jesus said, Truly I say to you, no one who has left house, brothers, sisters, mother, father, children, lands, 
for my sake, for the gospel, who will not receive a hundred now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters, mothers and children and lands with persecutions or pressure in the age that's to come, in, in the age to come, eternal life. But many who, will, many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. The whole Gospel of Mark basically is another constant, ongoing retelling of the same story. The story, the central theme of the story is always the same. It's always Jesus. Mark starts off his entire epistle by telling us that. He starts off by saying this. This is the beginning of the gospel, the good news, of Jesus. Then he describes, tells us what his impression of who Jesus is, who he believes Jesus is. He says, Jesus the Christ. We've been saying from the beginning, anytime you read the word Christ, you can also just simply interpret that as king. Jesus the king. So the story of the gospel, Mark, is really the story of what does it look like when God becomes king? What does it look like when God takes up reign? When God becomes the ruler? Not just of a country, not just of Jewish people, not just of a religious segment of righteous people, not just of a region, but when God becomes king of the universe. What does it look like when God becomes king? And the story of Mark, the ongoing narrative story of Mark, is this constant retelling of the story of what does it look like when God becomes king. And what we see throughout the entire Gospel of Mark are these ongoing case studies, in other words, every time Jesus heals a young child who, say, has a demon, that's another retelling of the same story. When God becomes king, demons lose their power. Um, what about when a little child gets raised from the dead? Well, when God becomes king, death loses its grip. What about Jesus calming a storm? These unpredictable elements of nature that are powerful, and we are powerless in the scope of them. Well, when God becomes king... They, have, they don't have the final word. God has the final word. And this is the ongoing, constant story or unfolding narrative of the gospel Mark that Mark keeps pressing home to us um, through all sorts of different retellings of the same theme but in different case studies. The case study that we're going to look at today has to do with what we're described as uh, a rich young ruler. And I'm just going to put it in summary because I've already read the story to you. But the next slide I'll basically just summarize for you because we read a lot of verses. But I'll summarize in short what the case study is. It basically looks at a rich young ruler who asked Jesus a question about securing position in his kingdom but then walked away with great sorrow. That's the story. Now Jesus then, as is typical... After some sort of scenario takes place, or oftentimes Jesus would tell a story, we call those parables, later when Jesus would go back and hang out with his disciples, which was sort of his inner crew of people, he had 12 apostles, there was uh, several disciples, or maybe hundreds of disciples, people that were just following Jesus, uh, and then there were larger crowds of people, but in Jesus' uh, fine inner circle, a group of people, there were 12 disciples, 12 apostles, and usually what would happen is that Jesus would have one of these scenarios out and around, out and about, on the road, uh, as he had just done here, and then when he later went back and hung out with his disciples, he started to talk with his disciples about this situation, and that's exactly what we see here. So Jesus then hangs out with his disciples in sort of the smaller setting and begins to tell them why this story poses a tragedy, all right? So again, starts out, here's this very rich, young, 
ruler who's got everything in a lot of ways, everything that you and I typically as a culture, westernized culture, we idealize. We idealize riches. In fact, many of us are motivated by riches. We desire riches. Some of you might say, I'm really poor. But if you think about being rich, riches is what you think about. If you're rich, you say, I'm really rich. But if you always try to figure out ways to secure your riches, to protect your riches, you're also thinking about riches. So if you're poor, you're thinking about riches because you don't have any and you want them. Or you're rich, you got a lot of riches, you're figuring out ways to try to secure them and protect them. Anyways, the point of the matter is, is we value rich being rich. We want to be rich. We are a culture that is very rich. And I'll say this. As Americans, we are very wealthy. Some of you might not feel very wealthy. Some of you might subsist off of Top Roman, but that's eons and light years beyond what typically other countries have because the reality is we in America are very wealthy. We have a lot. We live in, for all intents and purposes, for the most part, as kings in a lot of different ways compared to ancient cultures and civilizations. We have a lot, but we desire more. We want to be rich. We idealize rich. And young, this guy was rich, young, and he was a ruler. He was young. We idolize, value youthfulness. When you're young, you want to stay young. You work out. You do things that you can to try to keep yourself young. When you get old, you buy creams. You work out. You get exercise videos. You do whatever you can. You get tummy tucks. You do whatever you can to get and to remain young, to get young again. The desire of our nation of our culture is to have riches or to somehow hold on to youthfulness. This man was rich, he was young, he was powerful, he was a ruler. All of us want something to have rulership. In a lot of ways, having rulership or ownership over something is a way by which we find ourselves significant. We want to be significant. Some of us will never become rulers over great things. For some of you, the top of the scale or the top of the food chain you'll ever get to is middle management with a clipboard. And that's about the top of the rank you'll ever get to. But at the end of the day, we all want to be significant. So significance oftentimes for us and our culture comes through having great strength and rulership. We want to be recognized. Now, one of the favorite shows that my family likes to watch is a show called Undercover Boss. I've talked about this before. But there's the storyline in every single show or episode of Undercover Boss. The storyline is like this. There's a CEO of a big company. Um, I mean, it can be Baja Fresh. It can be, I don't know. There's all sorts of ones that they've had. But anyways, typically what happens is the CEO goes undercover. He grows a beard. He dresses in white trash clothes, gets a job, and he basically goes and works on the actual uh, line with all of these employees. Nobody knows exactly who he is. They just think he's just some guy coming in doing a reality TV show that's completely independent from Undercover Boss. But what ends up happening at the end of every episode Every person that this person's ever worked with or the CEO is now working with, they don't know that he's the boss. They don't know that he's the you know, top of the food chain in their kingdom. And what ends up happening at the end of the show, all of these workers that have been working with the boss for the past week, they're summoned in. They're brought in into basically his room. He comes walking out, and they're just like, uh, yeah, I worked with you this past week. He's like, uh, yeah, that was me. Like, I'm the owner of this entire company. Your paycheck is signed by, by me, right? So people are just like in shock. And what typically happens is the boss, the owner, the CEO will usually praise them. Uh, I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of like outtakes, right? I would imagine there are some shows where like, you know, like, undercover boss guys working with people that are like, I hate this company and the boss is an idiot. If I ever met him, I'd, 
you know. But the point of the matter is, they don't ever show those ones. At the end of the show, they always show the, the boss talking with employees that have worked really hard. And at the end of the show, he's always sitting down with them and just honoring them. He's like, you know what? You're an amazing person. You've worked really hard. And here's what I want to do for you. I want to give you a raise. I want to give you a vacation. I want to bless you. I want to take care of you. I want to shower honor upon you. And every single interview that comes from the people that have been, re- have been receiving this praise from the boss is always the same. It's always the same. They always say the same thing. Here's what they say. I'm so honored to finally be acknowledged. For someone to finally recognize the work that I do. And again, it doesn't matter what they do. They could be rolling dough for Subway, right? Making the, these sandwiches for Subway. They call them, I guess, I don't know, creative artists or whatever it is. Like, they're making sandwiches for art. That's all, they just want to be recognized. And at the end of the day, all of them say the same thing. I'm just so appreciative that someone recognized my hard work. The rich young ruler, in a lot of ways, encapsulates... Everything that we idealize. We want to be rich, we want to be young, and we want to be great. We want others to see us as great. This guy had everything. He comes to Jesus, asks Jesus a question, and goes away sorrowful. Okay, I want to ask the question, why did this happen? I want to try to answer this in three different ways. The first question that we'll take a look at is this. Uh, what was the rich young ruler asking? So I really want to try to understand what is the question that he's asking. The second question I want to ask is, what did the rich young ruler, or why did the rich young ruler leave sorrowful? And then the last question I want to really try to tackle is, what could have changed the rich young ruler's sorrow into joy? In other words, did he have to leave full of sorrow, or could that have been completely avoided altogether? Could he have entered into the joy the kingdom that Jesus was offering. Unfortunately, he didn't, but I'm trying to ask hypothetically, could he? And even extend it further. How do we make certain that you and I are not on the same path, misguided path, as this rich young ruler who lost it all, who seemed to have everything but lost it all because he never really met Jesus? So the first question is, is what was the rich young ruler asking? All right. Um, I think it's important to try to understand a little bit from a first century perspective what this rich young ruler is asking. Here's why I think this is important. Because I think for my entire Christian life, I had this idea of thinking that the question that this guy was asking when he came up to Jesus was, Jesus, when I die, how can I make certain I'm going to go to heaven? I don't think that was the question this guy was asking. The reason why is because that's not consistent with the way first century Jews would have thought about the kingdom. What I mean by that is we need to try to understand a little bit about the way first century Jews would have understood history, all right, just history. Here's the way first century Jews would have understood history. Hopefully, this might make sense to you guys to put this into context. Jews, first century, um, they would have understood history in two different ages. One would have been identified as the present age. That's the age in which they live in, in which they're under oppression, under the oppression of the Romans. Uh, It's an age in which there's injustice. It's an age in which there's a lot of pain. There's difficulty. There's sin. There's evildoers. Uh, Things are not right with the world. Things are not right with leadership. There's no king to oversee, rule over Israel. Um, That's described as the present age. But all Jews were hopeful. They were looking for what's described as the second stage of history as the age to come. The age to come, the way that Jews would have viewed it, would have been the day in which God would fulfill 
his ancient promises that he made to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, Moses, uh, Daniel, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, all these other prophets spoke of a day in which one day God would come and he would set up a new kingdom. It would be under the lineage of King David and this new kingdom that God himself would establish would be a good kingdom. It would be a kingdom that would put away evil. It would be a kingdom that would judge wickedness. It would be a kingdom that would establish justice. It would be a kingdom that would set the wrongs to right. And that this king would come and he would set up a kingdom of peace and freedom. And that's what this kingdom is about. So in the first century, what Jews were looking for was this new age, this new era, this new kingdom that when God became king. And most Jews in the first century with the exception, perhaps, of the aristocracy, meaning the Sadducees, they were looking for, anticipating, hoping in the coming, the soon-to-come unfolding of the promises of the ancient prophets. We see this all throughout the New Testament. When Jesus was first born, when Jesus was in the temple, uh, we're told of uh, different people that came to Jesus, and they wanted to see the king. So there was this buzz that was in the air, hoping, expecting that Jesus would actually be the king that would come to set the world to right. Now that being said, everybody had their own ideas as to what this kingdom would look like, right? Even though Jesus' own disciples uh, weren't exactly in sync with Jesus in terms of what the kingdom would look like, they thought that the kingdom that Jesus was going to come was going to look similar to like King Herod's or Caesar, meaning it was going to be a kingdom that you take by force, you use swords and you fight evildoers, you kill, you judge the wicked doers. Jesus is basically saying, you don't have any clue what you're talking about. My kingdom is not like Herod's kingdom. My kingdom is not like Caesar's kingdom. It's a radically different kingdom. But they believed that they were on the verge of the unfolding of this kingdom and that Jesus was at the forefront heading, leading this entire brand new kingdom that was about to come smashing upon the scene. So this rich young ruler, in that context, comes to Jesus, and he asks him, good master, what must I do to inherit a place in your coming kingdom? That's what he's asking. Again, he's not saying, when I die, one day, 50 years from now, how can I make certain I go to heaven? Now, that would include that, but what I'm trying to say is that what he's really trying to understand, how can I make certain that Jesus, when you become king, I'll be in your kingdom? I don't want to miss it. Because if God is on the verge of breaking through, justice is on the verge of replacing injustice, goodness is on the verge of replacing wickedness, evil is on the verge of being judged, I want to make sure that I'm there. I want to be there when this kingdom of God comes breaking through. And how can I make certain that I'm part of this? That's the question I believe this guy's asking, okay? That being said, the second question I want to know is, uh, why did the rich young ruler leave sorrowful? Because obviously he comes to Jesus asking this legitimate question, but then he ends up leaving sorrowful. The two words that are basically used in verse 22 are these. It says, uh, disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. The two words is disheartened and troubled. The first word, trouble or disheartened, is the uh, Greek word stignosis, which... Uh, depicts a picture of a cloud, and you can imagine sort of this high-pressure system, and it's dark, it's gloomy, all right? Uh, what happens when you are under clouds for an elongated period of time? You get kind of depressed, all right? Uh, that's the picture that's 
uh, indicated by this word stignosis. And by the way, it only appears three times in the entire New Testament, and each time it's in this exact same story. That this guy walked away gloomy, sorrowful, depressed. The second word that's used there is the word troubled, and it is the Greek word lupeo, which basically means grieved or sorrowful. It's also the exact same word that gets used to describe Jesus when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane praying that his soul, his heart was sorrowful, deeply troubled, deeply stirred that this rich young ruler came to Jesus asking Jesus how to secure a place in his kingdom, emphasizing something about his power and his might and his strength and his uh, riches, and he ends up leaving depressed, sorrowful. Why? I think there's at least three reasons why he went away sorrowful. First reason is this. I think he went away sorrowful because of what Jesus didn't say. Because of what Jesus didn't say. So this guy, we're told, he's rich, he's young, he's a ruler. He's got a lot of power, a lot of wealth. He comes up to Jesus and he says, good teacher. And then Jesus, Jesus really doesn't play into this guy. I mean, if you've ever been around somebody who has a lot of wealth, they tend to be people that sometimes feel like the world owes them something. They're powerful, they're mighty. And it may not be somebody that just has a lot of wealth. It may be someone that's ex- exceptionally good-looking. I mean, if you've been around somebody that's like exceptionally beautiful, exceptionally good-looking, there's a tendency that sometimes they want to be treated in a certain way. Or somebody that has a lot of power. They're very powerful. They know they have a lot of power. And if you don't treat them with the dignity and value and respect that they expect to be treated with, they get a little bit set off. They're frustrated. They feel insulted. I think this guy walked away frustrated, sorrowful, upset, in turmoil because Jesus, this great teacher as he viewed him, did not patronize him, didn't play into his little game. Perhaps he was manipulative, whatever the case is, but what Jesus did not say, he did not commend this man. He didn't look at him and say, good job on all your money, good job on your wealth, good job on your exploits. He didn't play into anything about this guy's life. And so I have a feeling that this guy was frustrated based upon, first of all, what Jesus didn't say, and he went away sorrowful. The second thing is that he went away sorrowful, I believe, is because of what Jesus did say. All right? I want to read at verse 18 to find out, again, what Jesus actually said. So he comes to Jesus, and he says, good teacher. Now, a lot of scholars disagree as to exactly the motivation and the intent of this guy as he approaches Jesus. Some will basically assume that this guy is just honestly respectful. He truly is just eager and humble and wanting to learn and grow, and try to figure out who Jesus is. So he comes to Jesus and he's like, good teacher, you're an amazing guy. I admire you. If you're on Facebook, I'd be your fan. Like, I, 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 I like you, Jesus. I want to know you a little bit better. So some would look at this guy as somehow really honestly, humbly coming to Jesus out of sincerity. Others view this guy as someone who knows how to wield power, knows how to manipulate the masses. He knows how to give honorable words to people that he views who have something to offer him back. In other words, he's a player. Have you ever met this guy? Have you ever met this girl? They're a player. They know how to use their words in such a way to be manipulative. So I believe that this is probably the way the guy is communicating to Jesus. He's a player. I see him as this, not as 
good intention, good motivations, good desires. I see him as a guy that's got a lot of power, a lot of strength, a lot of might. He's well-respected. Uh, there's a lot of people that follow him, a lot of people that respect him from afar off. But the point of the matter is I see him seeing Jesus and seeing Jesus as a king, and therefore Jesus has something to offer him. So he comes to Jesus, not out of good love, not out of good measure, not of willing to make Jesus his ultimate treasure, but because Jesus has something to offer him. So he comes to Jesus patronizingly. Good teacher, what good thing should I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus then asks him a series of questions. And basically, what Jesus does is he makes an appeal in verse 18 to the Torah. He says, why do you call me good? The implication here is not that I'm not good, but the implication is that Jews first century realized there is only one good, and the one true good is God. God is good. So in essence, what Jesus is saying, there's only one good. God is good. I'm God. God is good. Only one good. You're calling me good. You say rightly, I am good because I am God. Jesus then goes on to say, in, es- in essence, I'm not just simply a teacher. I'm not just a moralistic, ethical teacher. I've come for far more than that. I've come to not just simply teach you how to live. I've come to accomplish something for you because you have not lived rightly. That's what Jesus is saying. A lot of people love to look at Jesus from a distance and merely admire him. But if you really understand who Jesus is, you cannot just merely admire him. You either have to worship him and love him and see him as everything, or you reject him. There really is no two ways to look at Jesus. The idea, the notion that just somehow causes others to just think that, I just want to look at Jesus as a good moralistic teacher. Because if Jesus is just a moralistic teacher but nothing more, then he's actually a very, not a nice person. Because someone that comes and tells you, love your neighbor as yourself, that's oppressive. Can you do that? I mean, that's a nice, pithy statement. We can, like, write that one down. Some of you be like, I'm going to write that one down, put it on a mug. Too late. Some Christian bookstore has already done that. All right? The point of matter is that if all we view Jesus as being nothing more than a moralistic teacher coming to give nice, pithy statements to live by, then we can't live according to that. Tell me when was the last time that you fully, completely, for longer than a day, loved everyone with the same amount of love and affection you have for yourself? That's what I thought. Because we don't do that. We don't live like that. We can't live like that. So Jesus, if he's just simply a moral teacher that we admire from a distance, then we're all condemned. But what Jesus is really trying to say, I'm more than that, but here's what he goes on to point out. He says, you know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. Don't defraud. Honor your father and mother. And then he, the rich young ruler, said to him, says, teacher, all of these I've kept from my youth. Jesus looked at him, loved him, and he says, but you lack one thing. What Jesus does here is uh, Jews viewed the Torah broken down into two basic tablets. The one tablet uh, basically dealt with mankind on a horizontal level with other men, other people. So in other words, it would be my relationship with other people. What's my relationship, my outward horizontal relationship with other people? Well, if I live according to the Torah or living according to the Ten Commandments or what's otherwise known as the Decalogue, Ten Commandments, then I would see myself in a relationship with other people that if I break these things, then I actually break social relationships, meaning if I defraud you, then I break relationship with you. If I cheat upon your spouse or you cheat upon someone else's spouse or you steal from me or you lie, um, what ends up happening is you create a ripple, a a break 
a fracture in the social environment. Things are broken. But here's what this guy says. I've done all those. I, 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 I don't break those things. I've lived according to those things since my youth. There's a problem oftentimes in moralistic Christianity is we tend to look at Christianity as being a set of ethical rules that we're supposed to live by. And what has ended up, ended up happening in a lot of ways in a lot of Christian circles is Christianity has actually been reduced to nothing more than sort of a series of ethical um, rules in which we're to live by. But the reality of what Jesus is trying to say is that being bad will actually keep you from the kingdom, but also what he's going to say is being good will also keep you from the kingdom. This guy was very good. He did really good things. He was very wealthy, and I'm certain that probably with his wealth, because he was a good, pietistic, first century Jew, he probably would have given away what's typically called alms, meaning he was good at giving his money away. But the real root of the problem was not on the horizontal level with other people, because he, was a, he had a stellar reputation amongst his peers. But what Jesus then does is he goes a little bit deeper. And if you've ever had any run-ins with Jesus, you realize that Jesus never remains superficial. Some of us desire to just remain superficial, but Jesus won't have any of that. If we are to have any interaction with the true living God, we have to be prepared for the reality that this God will never remain superficial with you. He will always begin to peel back layers. He will begin to get deep into the deepest recesses of your heart that you have always sought to keep isolated from anybody else. Maybe even areas of your heart that you've chosen to simply pull back from even those that are closest to you like a spouse. But this God of the Bible, what he does is he keeps going deeper in this guy's heart and basically says there's one thing you lack. The one thing that you lack is that these great possessions possess you. And he tells them, take all that you have, sell it, give it away to the poor, and then you will have treasure in heaven. What Jesus is doing is he's basically saying, you have a worship problem. The real problem with your heart is not how moral you are. The real problem with your life is not how good you are. The real problem with your life is you have a worship problem. The Bible basically describes it like this, is idolatry. We, by default mode, are idolaters. For all of us, it's different. We each of us have different idols that we choose, that we run to, that we select, that we feel comfortable with, that we, that we fall back on as a default mode. Whenever our hearts are hurting, when we find ourselves going through difficult times, we run to these things. They are the default mode of our hearts. There's a lot of different ones. For some, it may be power. You default mode into power. When you feel yourself losing power, you bolster up your energy and your strength and your power. When you feel yourself losing your power, what happens is you tend to get full of anxieties. You find that oftentimes you can identify what your real idols are by when they're not there or when they're being threatened to be taken away from you, certain reactions happen in your life. If power is your idol, when you feel it threatened, you default into anxiety. Um, there's idols that sometimes people run to, sexual idols. Uh, there's idols that people run to that are like food idols. In fact, Paul describes it like this. For some people, they run by default mode to food. They turn to food. It's what they go to for comfort. It's when their hearts are hurting, when they go through difficult times, they run to food. Food is a comfort to them. It satisfies them. It makes them feel uh, good inside for a period of time. 
But what ends up happening is that at some point, uh, these idols or these things that oftentimes we run to by default, they end up governing or ruling or leading us. And that's what happened with this guy, the rich young ruler, is he had money, but the real issue was that money actually had him. He didn't possess the money, the money possessed him. And one of the best ways to identify whether or not something possesses you is how free are you to give it away? Food, how free are you to stop eating? Fast, take a day off, don't eat. Money, how free are you to give it away? You're like, don't talk about money. How free are you to give it away? To give it away to a church, to give it away to people that are hurting, to give it away to a family in a church that's maybe going through a tough time, to write them a check for a couple hundred bucks, to just give it away freely. How free are you to do that? That's how we begin to identify our idols. And this is exactly what was going on with this guy. See, what typically happens in our lives is everything boils down to what we, what the Bible describes as worship. We were created by God to give ourselves away unceasingly to someone or something. And what you'll discover in this life, on a sociological level, every single one of us in this room have something that we give ourselves away to or, give our, have some, or something that we give ourselves away to, unceasingly and unending. We give it our heart, we give it our money, we give it our honor. I was watching a commercial the other day, I don't even know what the commercial was for, but it, it, was, it was basically, it showed a, a, a snapshot of a football game, and it, it even actually used the word, what we worship. And I was like, that's amazing. Like, Hollywood is so honest these days, they actually identify, they call it what it is. Because the snapshot they showed in a football game were people raising their hands, giving out money to buy hot dogs. What they were doing is they were worshiping and praising with their hands raised and tithing. That's what they were doing. It was a church service. Only God wasn't being worshiped, a pigskin was. You think that's a silly? But the point of the matter is, this is the way the Bible describes it. Our hearts are always looking for something to give ourselves away to. This man, in this case study, just so happened to give himself away to money. And money ended up becoming what possessed him. Out of love, Jesus turns to him and says, the way to have eternal life is to fast, to take a break, to remove yourself from the God that you've given yourself to. And you'll have freedom. You'll have life. What you need to understand is that the intention and the heart behind Jesus always is always love. It's always his motivation. Whenever he begins to pry deeper into our hearts and reveal things to us that maybe are very uncomfortable, it's motivated by love. His intention all the time is always freedom. He seeks to free us. He seeks to help us. He seeks to set us free, and what Jesus does not want for us to be are people that just simply check things off of a list and say, I did that, yep, I did that, yep, I did that, but our hearts are far from him. The same way a husband might take his wife out on a date and say, I took my wife out on a date, yeah, but you played on your cell phone the entire date. You were not emotionally connected with her. You may have checked it off your list, you may have done the action, but your heart was not interested in her at all. 
She was not your treasure. She was not your priority. And what Jesus is saying is that I want more than you just simply checking something off of a list and saying you did this on a horizontal level. I want your heart. I want the engagement of your heart. In order to get the engagement of your heart, we have to rid ourselves, or you have to rid yourself of the true God that is presently, currently residing there. And I want to ask you this question. What currently in your heart is residing as the ultimate source of value and worship and praise for every one of you. It's all different for every one of us. Every one of us has something else that our default mode of a heart runs to. Every one of us. All of these reality shows that are on right now, like Biggest Loser, this is just a show about idols. For these people on The Biggest Losers, their idol is food. That's what they run to. It's where they get comfort, joy, hope, life. Only at the end, that because the show is on, it's about how food dominates them, controls them, and they lose control. Hoarders, it's about people who love stuff. I was going to say another word, but i trying to be sanctified. The point of the matter is, is that people give themselves away to these things by possessing, owning, hoarding a bunch of stuff. That's what they, they hold on to this in order to get hope, to get life, to find safety. At some point, it gets out of control, and they are no longer in control. It controls them. It's the same story. Different case studies. With this young man, who's rich, young, and a ruler, it was always the same thing, and it's always the same thing for all of us. It's always a worship issue. What is the default go-to God that we run to in the place of God. What Jesus is saying is I truly desire to give you the freedom to set you free, to help you. And this is what Jesus is dealing with this particular guy. It's one of the reasons why Jesus is going to go on to say now that really it's difficult for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. So the real problem, I want to be clear on this, is not money. When Jesus says it's difficult for a rich person it's easy for us to think that, well, the problem then is money. And there's a whole segment of Christianity that basically views money as being the very evidence of God's blessing. So the more you're right with God, the more God gives you money. And then there's a whole other segment of Christianity that basically reacts against that, that says, no, the true righteous people that love God are those that give all their money away and are impoverished. We are not justified by how much things we have, nor are we justified by how poor we are or how poor we can become. The real underlying root issue is that riches and pride go hand in hand. And that's what was going hand in hand with this guy. Riches and pride. You see, money, the more you have of it, the more empowered you feel. The more you have of this particular thing, the more strength you feel like you have, the more unstoppable you feel, all right? But see, here's the reality. You can supplement money for something else. So for some of you, it's good looks. You are exceptionally beautiful, and you've got good looks, and you feel empowered because you have a good body, good physique, good face, and you feel empowered by that. You realize that just because of the way that you look, you can obtain things, get certain things that other people can't just because of the way that you look. You feel a sense of empowerment. For others of you, you realize you don't have any money. You definitely don't have the looks, but you're really smart. You're like a computer nerd. And you use that as a form of power. You use that as something that you trust in or you're technologically advanced. It may not be with computers. It might be with 
uh, engineering or other types of things or science or you have a very uh, intellectual mind, you have a very smart mind, you are able to pick up on things and clues and ideas very easily. It comes easily for you. The point of the matter is no matter what you find yourself exceptionally good at, it's very easy for you to become prideful and arrogant and view that thing as something that becomes a path to make you great, to establish a name, to make you rich, to keep yourself young, to save you. And what Jesus is saying is that thing has become an idol. That thing must go. That thing will keep you from inheriting the kingdom of God. Not that the money is evil, but money and pride is evil. Not that your intellect is evil, but intellect and pride is evil. Not that physical looks are evil, but physical looks and pride are evil. You get the idea? That's the point. The third reason why I believe this guy left sorrowful was one, because of what Jesus didn't say. Secondly, because of what Jesus did say. Thirdly, Jesus, this man walked away sorrowful or went away sorrowful because he ultimately went away from Jesus. And what you need to understand is that Christianity is not primarily a series of moralistic teachings that you're to live by. Christianity is about a person. It's about a God who loves us. It's about a God who has done everything to bring us into a right relationship with himself. To walk away from Jesus is to walk away from the source of all joy. Let me try to put it to you as best as I can. Let's say, let's say, um, most of you in this room, um, I think probably I would take a poll, uh, just looking out, most of you, you're probably not married. Um, maybe half and half of you guys are unmarried. The rest of the school year, I don't know, 70% of our church is unmarried, and, you know, single. Um, but the reality is, is that most of us at some point will become married. And what that means is once you find this person that you've fallen in love with, you find a sense of joy. Rightfully, you find a source of joy. You should find joy in your spouse. You should find joy in that relationship. If you're not finding joy in that relationship, talk to me and we'll get you connected with a counselor. But the point that I would make is this, is that you should find a sense of joy in a relationship. But as that relationship progresses and moves on, there are elements that can come up in that relationship that can take you down a path that will go down to deeper joy or take you down a path that will go down to deeper pain and sorrow and disintegration and isolation and hurt and pain. And where that fork in the road comes is in terms of how much you allow each other to forage around in each other's lives, in private lives. Let me explain what I mean. The source of joy in a relationship will continue to blossom the more that relationship progresses and you allow each person in that relationship to speak into that other person's life, to mess around in the drawers, junk drawers, that we try to just throw everything in. When we close certain elements of our life off to the person that we claim we love, it brings pain. And that pain brings distrust. And that distrust takes us away from the path of joy and into the path of sorrow. This is the way it is with God. In order for us to have a right relationship with God, we have to allow him to mess around with the junk drawers of our lives that we have put do not disturb on and 
big, bold letters for the rest of the world to see, and we have to allow him access to those things that we've never wanted anybody else to wrestle around with. We have to give him permission, allow him to rearrange that drawer, to pull things out, to throw them away, to remove them, to contradict us, to confront us. And should we ever come to a point of saying no? You're not just simply saying no to a command or dictation. You're saying no to a person. And that saying no to a person is, in essence, walking away from that relationship. And in walking away from that relationship, you're walking away from the source of joy itself. This young man walked away sorrowful because of what Jesus didn't say, because of what Jesus did say. But he also went away sorrowful because he went away from Jesus who is the source of life himself. Last thing I want to ask is this. What could have changed this rich, young ruler's sorrow into joy? What could have changed him? I mean, I don't think the story had to end this way. I don't think it had to end in such a somber note, but it did. But what could have changed it? And I think there's two themes that kind of uh, penetrate the text, the first of which is the difficulty of the kingdom. Jesus actually uses the word twice. He says it's so difficult, and then Jesus actually uses an analogy. Uh, So in other words, you can put it this way. Three times, Jesus wants to emphasize how difficult it is. And you guys know this. If you've ever had something in your life that's this overriding habit, this addiction, how easy is it to stop a habit or an addiction? How easy? Is it easy? It's really, really tough. It's one of the reasons why they have things like interventions. It's because at some point, sometimes it takes someone intervening in your life and saying, I'm going to rip you from this. We have to have an exodus to get you out of here because it's so bad. It is so painful. It's so difficult. It's the only way that we can rescue you and save you because it's so exceptionally difficult. Jesus says twice, it's difficult for a rich man, remember a rich man with pride, to enter the kingdom And then the analogy he gives is baffled. It's baffled a lot of uh, professors and scholars for ages um, because, and they tried to look at this, and they they hear the story of Jesus talking about a camel going through an eye of a needle. They're like, what does that mean? Like, well, maybe there was like this, you know, city gate. It was called the eye of the needle, and for a camel to go underneath it. So it's crazy how many, you know, ways to try to explain this away. But the reality is, here's what I think is going on. I think Jesus was actually way more comical and funny than we tend to give him credit for, all right? I think Jesus is actually just being funny here, okay? A camel was the largest land animal in in the entire Middle East, all right? Um, I don't think they really had elephants there, so camel was the next largest thing, or the largest thing throughout the entire Middle East. It was the largest animal. So I think Jesus is, is like using hyperbole. He's He's using extremes. He's going out of his way to just show how absolutely absurd it is for rich people who are prideful to enter into his kingdom. He says, it's like a camel going through an eye of a needle. That's how difficult it is. And one of his disciples then asks, then how can anybody be saved? The word saved gets used a lot in the New Testament, and I want to take a brief second to just explain it. There's a lot of times that word can, you have to use that word always in the context. Sometimes the word saved can appear in the context of someone having a sickness or a disease, and they want to be saved. They'll say, I want to be saved. 
And what the implication is, is I want to be safe from this disease. I don't want the disease to take its toll on me and kill me. I want to be safe from it. So there is a very generic sense in which the word saved can imply a disease and being saved from that disease. But there's a more specific sense in which the word saved can also imply a sickness, not in the physical body, but in the soul, that we need to be saved from. And so I think the disciples are are really asking this question, Jesus, then, then who can be saved? Who can actually deal with the sickness of the soul and enter into your kingdom? Who can? If people can't buy their way into this kingdom... Because that's how all kingdoms always work, right? It's one of the reasons why, like, even our own country, we've tried to set limits on, like, fundraising for presidential elections, right? Because they're like, we don't want somehow the dude with the most amount of money or the girl with the most amount of money to get in office. That just doesn't seem to be the type of government we really want, right? So we set limits on that because we all know that's very easy in the way typically oftentimes works. There's why the big scandal happened. Uh, you know, after Obama became president in Chicago over, you know, this guy selling the seat. Like, that's not okay. We know that's not okay, but that's the way things have always been. And Jesus is saying, that's not how my kingdom works. You can't flex your muscle. You can't flash a smile. You can't roll out your resume. You can't take out, you know, a couple Benjamins, flash them in front of me. That's not what buys or secures a position in my kingdom because my kingdom isn't like that. And Jesus goes on to say, but here's what my kingdom's like. My kingdom is a kingdom of joy. My kingdom is a kingdom that basically, as he ends on this whole note, he says, you want to know what my kingdom's like? The first will be last. And the last will be first. This is kind of a crazy, this is what drives nuts, people nuts about Jesus, right? He says like, like these enigmatic type statements, like what the heck? What does that mean? Like first, last, last, first. What in the world are you talking about? Like Jesus, can't you just talk like common English? What does that mean? But Jesus is speaking so clearly and plainly about the way his kingdom works. The reason why we struggle with this is because we know this is not how the kingdoms of this world operate. We know that the way the kingdoms of this world operate are the strongest advance. The most powerful secure the seats. The best looking are the ones who make a name for themselves. The most gifted, the most talented, the most wise are the ones that become something in this world. And Jesus is saying, my kingdom doesn't work like that. The way my kingdom works is the first becomes last. The last become first. By the time Mark's done with this whole dramatic narrative of the life of Jesus, with the constant ongoing question, what will it look like when God becomes king? He will take us all the way to the cross, and on the cross, Jesus will die. And on the cross, the way that Mark tells this story has hints and clues because what I think Mark is trying to do is the way, the way that he tells the stories, he wants us to see, he wants us to clearly get it. The way that you and I can go from a place of sorrow like this rich young ruler to a place of great joy is not by securing a spot for us by how much money we have, by how good looking we are, by how wise we are. Thank God it's not by those things because some of us think that if good looks is what gets you saved or gets you security, all of us have to tap out, except for a handful of you. But the point of the matter is 
if, if this is the way God's kingdom works, we would all miss out on it. But the point that Mark wants us to see is that on the cross, we actually see a rich, young ruler giving everything away. We see the first becoming last. So that we who are last, so that we who are hurting, marginalized, broken, who are actually poor, despised, and wicked, can be given a place of honor. So that we who are last can be brought to a place of primacy in his kingdom. What sets you free, what breaks the death grip that your idols have on your heart in this constant, ongoing, perennial love affair that you have with these things, with your money, with your wealth, with your intellect, all of these attempts to somehow forge out an identity for yourself, the way that you break this love affair is you have to allow another higher, more powerful love penetrate and break it. To the degree that you see Jesus was the rich young ruler who gave away everything, that though he was rich, he became poor for our sakes so that you and I, our poor, can become rich. That though he was the only one who was deserving of all primacy, he was literally the cosmic first, the only one who can rightly claim first over all creation, that he became subject of scorn, dishonor, and shame on the cross so that you and I, who live a life of shame and dishonor before God, can be brought to a place of honor. To the degree that you see that, and that changes your heart, it rewires the way that you think, it reorders the affairs and the affections of your heart, to be able to see that you are loved by a king who gave everything to rescue you, you'll be free. That's what Jesus wants. He wants to free you. And so that now that you're free, you can love the poor, the marginalized, the hurting. Why? Because you're not looking at people to somehow get an identity from. You're not treating them as just somehow stepping stones to advance your career. You're not viewing money as somehow a means and a way to carve out your identity. Money becomes something that you get to enjoy, but it doesn't own you. You're free. Jesus is in his rightful place in your heart, and you're in your rightful place before him. You become a worshiper of God. You need to see what he's done for you. I'm going to finish by reading a quote, and I'm done. I'm going to have the guys come up. They're going to close in some worship, and we'll finish. It's by C.S. Lewis. Last paragraph of his book, Mere Christianity, here's what he says. He says, give up yourself, and you will find your real self. Lose your life, and you will save it. Submit to death, death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day, and death of your whole body. In the end, submit with every fiber of your being, and you will find eternal life. Keep nothing back. Nothing that you have not given away will really ever be yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself, and you will find, in the long run, only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ, and you will find him, and with him, 
everything else thrown in. What C.S. Lewis is saying is that if you try to find an identity in anything else, this rich young ruler, his identity was his richness, his youthfulness, and his power. Mark, Matthew, and Luke never even give us a name. There's no identity. He's just identified by what he had. What are you holding on to? What's your identity? Where do you get it from? What is that one thing that you look at or you want others to look at to find you notable? What Jesus does is he comes to rescue to say all of those other things will fail you. They will make you pay sacrificially in ways that you've never intended or dreamed of. But the difference between Jesus and all other false gods is all other false gods will make demands upon you and you must pay and you will sacrifice greatly to keep them in your life. You'll pay relationships. You will pay with money. You will pay with pain, sorrow, hurt. You'll pay. You will pay. Difference with God is he pays for you. He paid a price for you that you and I can't pay. That's the difference. To the degree that you see that he paid for you and that changes your heart, you'll be free. You'll be free to worship him and you'll be free to put everything else in your life, money, wealth, riches, sex, career, family, in its rightful place. It won't be a God. It will be a good thing given by God that you can enjoy. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. You can partake of communion if you're a believer. You love Jesus. Just remind you, God's here. He loves you. He wants to meet with you. God, thank you for the grace that you've given to us. We want to sing now to you and confess sins to you and worship you and love you and rightly order our hearts to submit ourselves to you. And in doing so, truly find life.